if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if we... if Sorry, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, "'Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire?' They replied, "'Certainly, your majesty.' He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening from the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Why don't we thank Morgan for that reading this morning. Just give her a clap. You can give her a clap. (laughs) I said I'm so sorry for giving you that scripture this morning because there's a lot of challenging names in that scripture. And if anyone needs any baby names, you've got Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego or Nebuchadnezzar if you'd like. Um, I just want to say I'm so thankful to be here uh, this morning. I'm Zeke. Um, I work for Open Doors Australia. But more than that, I just love the church. I love not just the church that I go to, you know, I work for Open Doors and I get to hear stories from all around the world on a daily basis, but man, I just love the church of Jesus Christ. You know, like this church is an awesome church. I love this church and I've loved having conversations with Peter, but more than just this church, you know, we're a part of something much bigger than just this little church. You know, there's millions and millions of people all around the world that follow Jesus some of them have a different cost of following Jesus. For, for example, 360 million Christians around the world are persecuted for their faith. And that's not just little ends of persecution. That's very high ends of persecution where it could cost them not only their life or their well-being or their safety, but it could cost them and their families and their children's, and it can affect them long into the future. But I'm so excited to be here with you this morning because 
Um, I love that as a church, you've invited Open Doors to come and be able to share stories and share a message and just open the Word of God together. And, and I love this Daniel 3 scripture because it ultimately is the heart of the persecuted church. Now, some people may not have heard of or maybe heard of this term before the persecuted church. You may not have even heard of Open Doors before. Has anyone here know of Open Doors? Just a little raise of hands. Yeah. Oh, we got lots of people. For those who don't know Open Doors um, here this morning, uh, we're being a ministry that's been operating for over 75 years now, but we were started by a great man of faith named Brother Andrew, who, when he was in his early young adult life, he saw a need in Eastern Europe to deliver Bibles to people who didn't have access to them. So what he would do is he'd get as many Bibles as he could and he would put them in his Volkswagen Beetle and he'd shove them in any corner like, and hide them throughout all the car. And he would just pray and pray and pray and pray before crossing the border that they don't search his car. And what he would do is he would go across the Eastern Europe border and deliver Bibles to people who don't have access to them. Our ministry was born of this one man's uh, vision and faith to strengthen what remains because he saw a part of this church that we love. You know, yeah, we are in a church kills like South, but this body of Christ that we're a part of, he saw this part of the body of Christ that was in need, that needed help. And he said, I can do that. I can strengthen what remains in the persecuted church. And 75 years on, we still continue the ministry is now worldwide ministry off this one man who delivered Bibles across the border. Amazing. It's so amazing. But I love this Daniel 3 scripture, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Now, I remember hearing this scripture for the very first time when I was on a youth camp. And I remember all of like the friends I was with and the community that I was with, we just loved this verse. It was such an amazing story of how good God is, how powerful God is and how amazing God is and the amazing miracles that he can do in his people and through his people. And I especially love this statement in Daniel 3, verse 17 to 18. They say these, the, this, the, th- the three, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego say this, if that is the case being if you're going to throw us into the fire, if you're going to put us to death for our faith, if that's the case, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us. He will deliver us. But if he doesn't, let it be known to you that we will not serve your gods. I love that statement. Like the he is able, right? That's a, that's a big statement in itself. He's able. Right? He's able to save us from death. He's able to rescue us from this perilous situation. They, they believe that God is able. But not only do they think he's able, they also think he will. So they have a faith that they, yes, believe their God is powerful and they believe he's strong and they believe he's able to rescue them. But more than that, they actually are believing that he is going to do that. And if they wanted to go even further, those two statements in the self are powerful. They go even further and just want to let Nebuchadnezzar and everyone in the room know that even if God doesn't save us, we're still not going to worship the God that you've set up. What a statement. What a power. Can I just ask you a question this morning? Would you say that? 
If you are in a situation right now where maybe you're being tested, maybe you're being challenged, maybe you're in a season of doubt or a season of struggle or a season of suffering, what are you saying? Because I was just reflecting on myself and I'm reflecting on myself here. Maybe you can reflect with me. But I have no problem. I think everyone in this room has no problem saying our God is able. I love that we create spaces in churches where we can come and we worship and we sing and we say God is able and we believe he can do miracles. Uh, Do we believe that this morning? Yeah, we believe our God is able. But oftentimes I find in my life that first step is often the only step I take. How often in my faith do I go, not only is he able, but I have faith that he will. You know, we sometimes say this, and I know it's out of a good heart and it's out of a good posture, but sometimes we go, no, we can't, we can't say that he is because then we might let people down. We can't say he is going to save you because then we might, oh, we might hurt people. And I understand the space that we want to hold people in and we want to, we want to be able to hold people and respect people and honour people in the journey that they're going through. But oftentimes we have a faith that is so based on outcomes that oftentimes we don't even have the faith to say that he is going to. And I think we've gone maybe too far the other way. And oftentimes, sometimes we find it really hard to say that he is able part and he will part. But oftentimes, if he doesn't, then we start questioning God. Is he with me? Is he really good? Is he for me? Am I walking in the purpose of him? Am I doing the right things? We start questioning these things. And I believe this morning, as we reflect on this statement, he is able, he will. And even if he doesn't, this statement that encapsulates the heart of the persecuted church, I believe God is wanting to take us on a journey. And I believe God's placed this message on my heart to be able to raise some faith in people this morning. Because I still believe this morning that now not only is our God able to provide, to bring healing, to bring um, wholeness, to save people, to provide for people. He's able to do so many things. I also believe he will do that this morning. I believe he will. And I also want to say that if he is going to, even if he doesn't, he's still worthy of praise. He's still worthy of our glory. He's still worthy of our honour. And so this morning, I want to just bring this word to you and I bring some reflections. And usually when I talk about this, I love the, the, the series that we're a part of here at the moment. I, love, I listened to Scott Pilgrim from last week and just speaking about mission in the life of ordinary people. I love that. Mission in the life of ordinary people. And I love this idea of crossing the street. You know, mission often starts with just taking a step just walking, crossing the street. And you know, this morning, as I share, I'm going to talk about the persecuted church, but more, I'm going to talk about Jesus. And if there's any greater example to crossing the street, if you think of a street, there's a street and your neighbor's on one side and you're on the other. Do you know who's the best example and who showed us so plainly what it means to cross the street, to reach out, to reach out to those who are in need? It was Jesus who died on the cross. So let's open the word this morning. I believe there's a couple of reflections that we can um, position ourselves in so that we know how to walk 
in faith, not just faith that he's able, but faith that we're going to believe for him to do miracles, but also a faith that is so strong and so deep-rooted that we're going to be able to say, even if he doesn't. So, are you with me this morning? Is that okay? Sorry, I'm really passionate speaker, so I'm quite like energetic and, you know, I'm, I'm, I really love it. So uh, just bear with me as I get excited about the Word of God this morning. So our first reflection this morning is that persecution is a part of the process. Big first, big first step. Persecution is a part of the process. It's a... Maybe you came and you heard these words like suffering and persecution and all this sort of stuff and your, your heart and your inner being just sort of goes maybe a bit inward because we hear statements like this and honestly, we don't like them. They feel really uncomfortable for us. And some people might be thinking in their head right now, okay, we're thinking about the persecuted church. We're hearing from open doors. It's going to be a really sad and depressing morning. Can I say the persecuted church is actually one of the most faith-filled, hope-filled, love-filled churches? And I believe if we can just grab a little bit of what they have, it wouldn't just change Kilsyth South, it would change Victoria, it would change our country. So the first step that we need to understand is that persecution is a part of the process. You see, Jesus in John 15 verse 18 to 20 says this, he says, if the world hates you, Remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer a part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, and that is why it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. See, Jesus is quite open about what is to be expected of people who follow Jesus you see maybe in our paradigm in our culture this is a very different idea of what faith is but in Jesus's day in the time and of Jesus and all the disciples this was a this was a known thing if you're to follow Jesus it comes at a cost if you're to follow Jesus if you're to follow in his ways it's going to come at a cost because sometimes in our culture, we would say things like this. Well, if all of us just acted more like Jesus, everyone would love everyone all the time. Well, if you read the Bible, it doesn't take too long to actually find that Jesus actually, not everyone liked Jesus. In fact, it was the religious people who didn't like Jesus. And further in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, yes, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's no, there's no uh, might or could or there's a 30% chance. It's actually you, you will. It's a definite statement. And this is why it's really challenging for me because I remember my first week working at Open Doors, I started with a couple other staff members and our CEO sat us down. His name's Mike. He sat us down and he said, Man, I, I read these scriptures, reflecting on these scriptures about persecution and that's what is to be expected of believers. And, and he said this, he just was reflecting. He said, man, I wonder if we're not experiencing persecution because Jesus is no longer evident in our lives. And I remember sitting in that chair and I just sunk in because I'm like, that's true, isn't it? Sometimes we can 
become so accustomed to the culture that we live in that suddenly Jesus is no longer evident in our lives. And even furthermore, it made me reflect that sometimes, and I don't think it's because we intentionally do it, but just because of the culture we're a part of, there's an attitude that is growing in the Western church that says, essentially, the church and this faith exists to just make us healthy and wealthy, right? You get out what you put in. You know, like Jesus is like some big football coach saying, you know, give us, you train hard, you're going to get results. And what happens is we can unknowingly, not, not meaning to do it, all well-meaning, but we can say and create a gospel that just essentially says, just do better, do more. And I think it's really crucial when we're in missions month to not just make it do more. You need to do more people. You need to do more. I think ultimately sometimes we create this equation in our, in our, in our mind about faith and what, what, what we need to do to be able to get salvation. And when sometimes we can go like faith plus works equals salvation. When ultimately works was not the basis of what Jesus was trying to get us to do. It was faith equals salvation and the fruit of being saved by our Savior is works. So I'm telling you today, God doesn't want you to do anything that he doesn't want to initiate in you. So I would say throughout this month of missions month, be asking God, what are you wanting me to do? Where are you wanting me to go? What street are you asking me to cross? What area of our community and in our state here are you wanting me to go? Maybe God is calling you out of this country. But I would say that God first initiates in you. And the reality is, is that we can sometimes unknowingly, not really thinking about it, create this thing where we just got to do more. So if we pray more, if we give more, if we do more, if we do more missions, if we do all these things, if we tithe, if we read our Bibles, if we do our Bible study, if we do Alpha, all these things are really good things. But essentially, if we do all that, then we will receive. But that's just not the case. You see, with that mindset, it either will lead us in pride or despair because either we're going to do what is asked of us and we're going to stand here and go, well, I've reached my destination. I've done it. I'm done. Or it leaves us in despair because we don't do and now we're standing here going, oh, I can't do what's asked of me. I can't do it. And now you live in this state of, well, I'm not good enough. Do you know the whole point of Jesus coming is not because we can do it? Because if, if we could just do it all on ourselves, like if we could save ourselves, why would Jesus come? If we really, if we could save ourselves, if we could do all the right things, why would Jesus come? Ultimately, we are unable to do. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need to come to him in this time and go, Jesus, you are the one who saved me. You are the one who was able to do things. You know the best way. So I'm going to trust in you. So this morning we have to understand that persecution is a part of the process. And sometimes we need to understand that the process of following Jesus, you know, when Jesus called his disciples to follow him, he says, pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. Ultimately, Jesus knew that suffering was a part of his purpose and we need to understand that as we walk in mission, as we cross the road, 
Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, God was, they were so, sta- uh, so adamant on who God was, they were not going to deny him. And as they were living out their faith, as they were being true to who their God was and who they are, that brought them fire. But that sometimes, I'm not saying all the time, is a part of it. So our first step is that persecution is a part of the process. Our second step is that proximity is Jesus' position. There's this story of our team before COVID, about four or five years ago now, went to northern Iraq. And um, we had a team that were going there to minister to and speak to people who'd been displaced by ISIS. And our team reflected that as they were flying in, they look, you know, you fly into a destination, you look out the plane window and you can sort of oversee the region or the place that you were entering into. They reflected that as they were coming in, they looked out the window and they could clearly see what they were walking into and what they were landing into was a war zone. They could see where airstrikes have recently hit the ground and billows of smoke raising to the air. They also could see at the airport as they were flying in hundreds and dozens of uh, military aircraft lining the runway in case of an attack. They also could see just outside of the airport these makeshift tent cities that were almost slum-like conditions of people who were just trying to flee, trying to find safety. So they created these little makeshift cities with whatever they had. And our team's goal was to go through these different cities, these different slum-like locations and speak to people and encourage people and fill the need and, and figure out what the need was. And we did that for the coming days. And, but there was this one man that we spoke to that really challenged us. We said, sort of talking to him, built a friendship with this guy and him, his wife and his five children were displaced by ISIS. We started asking him, tell us your story. How, 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 did you, how are you here right now? What was it like before? He sort of said, before ISIS came, I had two veterinary clinics, I had multiple houses, I had undeveloped land. He said, in no uncertain terms, that he was a multimillionaire. He had money, he was, family was set up, he had homes, holiday homes, everything, you know. And then he reflected that at one of his businesses, he employed this man, he was a Muslim man, and him and um, this man had a couple of great conversations about faith over the years. And over the years, they became family friends and their families hung out with each other and they spoke about the Muslim faith and the Christian faith and they went back and forth on ideas eventually over years and years and years and friendship, 10 years of friendship actually, he became business partners with this man. And so him and his best friend now owning these businesses together, one day randomly he's talking to his friend of 10 years and his friend randomly says this, one day everything you have is going to be mine. He was a bit confused, a bit unsure about why. Why would he say that? And maybe a bit naive in the moment, he sort of just brushed it off and said, oh, don't worry about it, it's, it's all good. No problem. 
It wasn't before long that ISIS actually invaded their town. And he said in a minute, within an instant, he'd lost, he'd lost everything. He needed to get him, his wife, and his five children out. They needed to flee. They needed to take whatever they could have. ISIS had taken over and they needed to flee. Otherwise, they would die. And he reflected on the first night he was putting his children to bed, chucking, uh, tucking them in and telling, you know, good night, all his children. And he walks out and he sees that his phone is ringing. It's his business partner. It's his friend. He picks up the phone. He says, hello, what's going on? Is everything okay? The first thing his friend says to him is, under the law of ISIS, I take everything you own. In fact, I'm sitting in your room right now. His friend of 10 years had taken and stolen and been corrupt by extremist ideology. This, uh, this man replied back to his friend and said, well, that's okay, that's fine. You just look after it for now and when this all finishes, I'm going to come back and you can give it back to me. His friend says, no, don't you ever come back because I just take it from you all over again. Wow. We asked him about what is happening right now. What's life like right now? And he said, well, at the moment we live in this city. We're sitting in like this little tent. And he says, at night times I need to, because of the the conditions that we live in, if you lie on the floor for too long, rats will come and start trying to eat your skin, just trying to get something. So him and his wife, they take turns throughout the night holding their five children above their heads as they lay on the ground. Lying on the ground, holding their children above their head. And we're like, wow. And then he said this, which actually has changed my life, but it's changed many people that have heard this, his story. He said this, living in this camp, I now know Jesus. Not like before though. You see, I was happy back then. I had more money. I had a big house. I was a rich man, but I had no love. ISIS was a gift because I now know the love of God more than ever. Just going to say that again. ISIS was a gift because I now know the love of God more than ever. People always ask me, where was God when we were displaced? But we witness the hand of God with us all the time. See, if we don't focus our minds on what we've lost, but focus on God and what he has done for us, looking back, I realized I was only a Christian by name. Then he said this, the challenge with you Christians in the West is that you're more in love with your life than you are with Jesus. And that makes you unwilling to die for him. I'm just going to read out those. There's just two statements in there that just really get me. ISIS was a gift. First of all, this group that has brought trauma and pain and suffering on him, his wife, and not only just him and his wife, his five children, he can sit in the middle of that 
and look at us and say that ISIS is a gift. Second of all, which is maybe the gut punch right at the end for us sitting there with him. But the challenge is with you Christians in the West is that you're more in love with your life than you are with Jesus. And it makes you unwilling to die for him. You know, this is a man who understands that in his suffering, Jesus is with him. You know, I wonder if sometimes we're so focused on getting out of our suffering, getting out as quick as we possibly can. You know, we almost try and make like little five-step plans, you know, like how to get out of suffering, how to get out of this thing. How can we get out of what we are facing as quick as we possibly can that sometimes we forget that Jesus is actually in it with us right there? You know, think of... I think of Psalm 23. I know we all get a lot of comfort from Psalm 23, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They comfort me and you'll prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. We love that verse. But looking at this man's story, I don't understand it because in my world, in my times when I'm in suffering, I just want to get out. I just want to get out of my suffering. I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, what what it feels like. And I'm looking up to the top of the mountain saying, God, where are you? I'm in here. When ultimately what this scripture is actually saying and what this man has actually experienced in himself is that in his valley, God is there. There's no promise to get out. There's actually not even a promise that you will get out of the valley of the shadow of death. The promise is, is that when you are in it, I will be there with you. So maybe we spend our time in the valley of the shadow of death, looking up to the top, looking for God. And Jesus is like, I'm right here. I'm right here. And so we need to understand that persecution is a part of the process, but also that when we are in what we are facing, I'm not saying there's going to be bad times all the time, but what you are walking through, Jesus is there with you. And finally, our final step to understand is that pride clouds our perspective. You know, I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love it. But I think sometimes the danger with this scripture is we obviously can reflect and we can put ourselves as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we say this, is that when I'm in suffering, God wants to take me out. When I'm in suffering, God wants to give me a miracle. And I would say that is a really good interpretation of that scripture. And if you're walking through suffering today, if you're walking through something that you're going... I don't know how long I can hold this up for. I don't know how I can continue to keep going in the way. I want to tell you this morning that God's desire is to save you, is to bring you hope, is to bring you freedom, is to do that. That is his desire. But ultimately, we can sometimes relegate the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's suffering to God's way of giving us a miracle. But do you know who God was actually trying to reach in this story? It wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you know that? 
God was actually trying to reach and persuade King Nebuchadnezzar. God was trying to reach out to the one of the most powerful men in all of creation in that day. God was reaching out to him saying, I am the one who has power over life and death, not you. God is reaching out to Nebuchadnezzar saying, you may think you're in control. You may think you are the most powerful person in the world. You may think you are a God, but ultimately you are not. I am. And it was actually God's attempt to persuade the persecutor. Can I just put this in context with what we're talking about in this missions month? Crossing the street. Sometimes we just cross the street to the people that we want to serve. We, oh, I like those people, so I'll serve those people. Can I tell you God's purpose is for everyone? Even your enemy. Do you know that? And I want to just make this reflection. Do you know what the difference is between the persecuted and the persecutor? Do you know what the difference is between those two people in the grand scheme of things? Nothing. They're both sinners in need of a saviour. They both need Jesus. They both need hope. They both need Jesus' love. They both need Jesus' peace. Everyone in this world is not too far to see Jesus touch them. And so I would say that if you are in suffering and if you are needing a miracle and you're crying out to God and you're saying, I need you, God. I need you to move in my life. I think that's a really good thing to be asking for. But I wonder when you receive your miracle, when you are walking through suffering, who's going to be in the room with you when you receive it? Because in Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's story, it was King Nebuchadnezzar. And we see in Daniel 3 a bit of like a quick reaction to the faith that he's just witnessed Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, anyone who wants to stand up against his God, just put their house to rubble. You know, he's sort of just saying that straight away, right? But we really see his testimony and his coming into faith with Jesus just a chapter later in Daniel 4, verse 37. He says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honour the King of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Could I ask this morning, maybe in our life, maybe we're not so much Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, but sometimes we are so prideful that we forget certain people in our mission. Maybe we leave people out because we don't want to serve them. You know, at Open Doors, our, maybe if you want to call it our one-liner or whatever, if people ask us, what, what do Open Doors do? This is what we say. We say, we want to help people follow Jesus no matter the cost. That's what we say. We want to help people follow Jesus no matter the cost. Do you want to know why persecuted Christians follow Jesus no matter the cost? Do you want to know why? Because they see a day where ISIS is overcome by the good news of Jesus. That's why. Because they see a day where the Taliban is overcome by the good news of Jesus. That's why. 
It's not because they want to receive a miracle. It's not because it's about themselves. It's because they want to see their countries, their governments, their systems, the extremist groups, everyone from their country from top to bottom, they want to see them overcome by the good news of Jesus. That's why. And so I want to say to you this morning, why should you follow Jesus no matter the cost? Why should you? Because truly, if this is not our desire when we reach out to the world, then what is the point? The point is that we want to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Because in Him, everything that we need is found. In Him, we are saved. In Him, we are loved. In Him, we find our peace and our meaning in life. That is why we reach out to the world around us, even our enemies. Because no one is too far away from God's reach. Matthew 5, verse 43 to 44, Jesus says, You've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. And he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I think God wants to activate something in this community. I really do believe that. I love this thing that we got at this um, truck we got out the back there. I love it. But I'm telling you, that's just one of hundreds and hundreds of ideas that are within this community right now. And there is a community out there. You don't need to go too far into our region just Kilometers out of this, if you draw a three kilometer radius around our church, around the church right here, you would find so many needs that need fulfilling. I wonder what need you could fill. May not be comfortable, may not be what you expected, may not be to who you think it should be to, but ultimately there's people crying out for a savior, people crying out for hope, people crying out for love. And the church is meant to be that beacon of hope. And sometimes we can just say this, well, they can come to church. We're open every Sunday. They can just come here. No, no, no. Jesus reached out to us, so now we are to reach out to the world around us. That's what our call is. So ultimately, I hope that today, just by this sharing, that we're able to just stand as a community and we're going to believe that our God's able and that he will. And even if he doesn't move, we're just still going to come and we're still going to worship him and we're still going to honor him and we're still going to glorify him because he is worthy of it. If he does nothing else for the rest of all of time, he's done enough. Just want to say that what he did on the cross is the final, the finished work. It's done. And if he was to do nothing else, it's still enough. Persecution is a part of the process. Proximity is Jesus' position and pride clouds our perspective. Some of you may be going, how, how, how can I help? Uh, maybe you're sitting right here and your heart is turning and you want to support the persecuted church. You've been encouraged by the stories. And man, I, I told you one story. How much time do we have? Do we... Do we as much as I, need. I know people want to get out to lunch, which is good. Um, I want to get out to lunch as well. <laughs> I want to just tell you one more story because I think the stories are just so powerful. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why I'm telling you this story. But it's a story of an amazing woman named Helen Bahani. 
See, she was um, arrested in Eritrea, Africa, for singing worship songs on the steps of her church. See, it's not illegal to be Christian in Eritrea, but it is illegal to share your faith publicly. So after church, on a Sunday not too different like this, she walked out onto the steps of her church and started singing. She was arrested and put into prison. In fact, prison didn't look like what we would maybe picture prison. You know, we picture bars and cells. Prison for her was being taken out, taken out into the middle of the desert and thrown into a shipping container with 30 other people. She had a daughter and she was given opportunities almost every day. You can go out and you can go be with your daughter. All you need to do is sign this little piece of paper saying, I won't share Jesus anymore. She couldn't do it. She didn't want it. So she stood And she stayed in that shipping container. And instead of letting her prison be what it is, a prison, she actually allowed it to be her platform to share the gospel with people. You know, in the shipping container, if you were one of the unlucky in the 30 to sort of be on the outer wall during the day, if your arm or your leg or your hip or whatever it was was to touch the wall of the shipping container, it would burn your skin. Not only that, as many people would die of hypothermia overnight. Not everyone could sleep at the same time, so people had to take shifts. Who lies down? Who stands up? Who does that? Helen shared the gospel with people. And on multiple and multiple occasions, guards would listen through the cracks of the shipping container. And they go, ha, we've caught you. Come out. They pull her out. They go, Helen, where's your Bible? Don't have one. Don't have a Bible. So she got beaten. Then she'd take her back in saying hopefully she would learn her lesson now. She's not going to share Jesus with people anymore. No, she continued to share Jesus. Not only would she share Jesus, she would sing. She would praise. They would take her out. They'd beat her. They'd put her back in. She'd praise. She'd share the gospel. She'd tell people about Jesus. They'd take her out. They'd beat her. They'd put her back in. One day the guard said, Helen, this is enough. No more. Bring her out. They force her to her knees. They make her hold a large boulder, digging her knees into the rocky ground. And they say, Helen, this is your last chance. Where is your Bible? I don't have one. Helen, where is your Bible? I don't have one, she said. And then the guard asks her, well, have you got it in your head? And Helen goes, yeah, I have it in my head. And it's in my heart. And the man looked at her and said, well, we're just then going to have to beat it out of you. And this is, there's videos online of Helen telling this story, but she was receiving this beating with a baton. And in the middle of this beating, she looked up to this man and she said to him, I forgive you, for I know you're just carrying out an order. But you have to understand me. I'm carrying out an order too. And that's not to deny the name of Jesus. She was beaten until what they thought actually she was dead. They thought she was. They took her to a hospital and it was there that open doors were able to intersect with her, get her safe refuge for her and her daughter 
and she lives today telling the story of her persecution. She's received trauma care. She's received Christian resources. She is living a life now telling the story of her persecution. And I tell you that because many people like Helen follow Jesus at that cost. And can I tell you something? They don't even have a Bible. You know, faith comes by what? Hearing the word. There's so many persecuted Christians that have just heard a scripture. Someone's told them about Jesus. And what's even more crazy is they've heard about this Jesus and they think it's good news and they say they're going to follow him. And they live out their life and they go to prison and they come out of prison and then they go back in and then their family and they lose their jobs and everything. They don't get health care during COVID. All these things, right? They don't even have the word of God. They've just heard someone talk about Jesus and they believe. And that's why today you would have seen on your seats, there's these little cards here. And it says strengthen what remains on the front. But on the back, I want to give you a really unique opportunity. Peter told me that you guys deliver Bibles to year sixes in the local area. We're essentially doing that, but for persecuted Christians. There's people around the world, there is a massive need for Bibles. People who are following Jesus, that are desiring to know about him, that they want to learn about him, they want to know more about the Savior. Some of them just have inscriptions of the Bible. They have a verse written down that they've heard somewhere. And I wonder if today you would want to give towards the persecuted church and deliver Bibles. Now you go, how, what, what, what does that look like? To deliver a Bible, when I say deliver, I mean make, manufacture, store, deliver, put into the hands of a persecuted believer on average costs $20. $20 for a Bible. You know what's crazy? We can go to Kurong, we can buy any color Bible, any whatever we want. We can get ones with flowers or butterflies, whatever, right? right? We can get any sort of Bible we want. There's just people who are in need of Bibles and it's 20 bucks. So maybe today you could deliver one Bible. Awesome. You know the great thing about delivering Bibles is just think of when a community get a Bible. Think, look at this right here. There's a Bible right here. Imagine one community gets a Bible and it sits on a table like this. Can you just think the day that they get their Bible delivered to them? It sits on a table. Imagine all of them crowding around. They've been waiting to hear and waiting to read the word of God. And now they've got it. It's amazing. So I wondered today if you'd want to do that. How you do that is you can scan the QR code. If you don't want to scan the QR code, because I know we're all pretty much done with QR codes at this point, (laughs) Uh, there's a website um, open just above the QR code is opendoors.org.au forward slash killscythe SBC. And you can deliver one Bible, $20, as many Bibles as you'd like, really, whatever you're able to do. If you feel God is calling you to do that this morning, I want to encourage you to do that. If you want to know more information about that, I'm going to be hanging around after the service. You can chat with me. Um, but let's just pray. I want to pray for these Bibles. I'll pray for you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one ultimate true sacrifice, Father. Lord, we love you. We want to worship you and we want to follow you, not based off 
what you give us or what outcomes of faith that we have, but we want to worship you because you are so worthy of our praise, Father. You're so worthy of our glory and honor, Father. We want to, we want to lift you up and we want to praise your name. And Lord, we don't want to forget our persecuted brothers and sisters that are suffering for you. We want to raise them to you, Lord. We want to pray for them, pray to give them strength and boldness to continue to follow you no matter the cost. But I also, Lord, want to pray for the persecutors, those who are bringing suffering on the body of Christ, Lord. I pray that you would intersect them and you would change them from the inside out, Father, because your heart is to save all people. It's not about us and them. We are all in need of a saviour, Father. So we, I pray that as a community we go out and we serve our local uh, community. As we cross the street, Lord, we are able to say that you are able to do amazing things, that you will do amazing things. And even if you don't, Father, we're still going to worship you. So we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen.